no one deserves or ever deserves His grace. But God has sovereignly determined to give grace only to those who humble themselves before Him. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom has part nine of his series titled War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. We're back in James chapter four, verses one through 10. Though it may not appear so at first, the principles that apply to conflict are not confined to just arguing and quarreling. Put a different way than what you might expect, it truly is a matter of pride. You'll be sobered by the hard truths about pride, but encouraged by the reality of God's grace to the humble. Friend, open your Bible now as we discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. I was thinking this last week that it's been 22 years since my dad passed away. It's been in glory with our Lord. I was reminded of that as I was thinking back on some of the years when I was growing up. I have many fond memories of times with my dad as well as with my dad and brothers together. I particularly remember our enjoying as a family sporting events together. One of the memories that remains vivid in my mind is sitting in our tiny little living room in Mobile, Alabama, together as a group of guys, I have four brothers and my dad and I, listening to a radio announcer called Blow by Blow the fights of the great Muhammad Ali. As a kid, I was fascinated by this character because it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone who was so overtly self-promoting. You know, I am the greatest. And his little poem, fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee, his hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. He was never known for his humility, only for his boxing. In fact, one story that was often told I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly Ali was on an aircraft flying to one of his engagements, and during the flight, the aircraft hit some bad weather and some fairly significant turbulence. The passengers, of course, were immediately instructed to fasten their seat belts by the captain, and everyone complied but Ali, and the flight attendant recognized that he had not and came over to him and politely asked that he comply with the captain's command to fasten his seat belt to which Ali replied with these classic words, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Well, the flight attendant, not to be outdone, and thinking quickly on her feet, said, yeah, and Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> For Ali, pride was not only a part of his character, but it was also a carefully staged public persona. And frankly, it was often very funny. His interchanges with Howard Cosell cannot be forgotten. But his antics, the reason I bring Ali up is because his antics were part of what I believe was a larger societal shift that was happening. If you were alive before Muhammad Ali, you'll remember that there was a general expectation that you would not overtly promote yourself. In fact, if you were a respectable member of society, you were supposed to at least feign humility. 
Now understand that sinners have always been sinners. They've always been filled with pride. But there was at least a veneer of humility that respectable members of society were supposed to have in their interactions with others. That is certainly no longer true. And I think Ali wasn't so much the cause of it as he was part of a huge societal shift that occurred. You saw it beginning even in the 70s. Some of you remember G. Gordon Liddy, the Watergate conspirator, when he was released from prison, uttered these words that made all the news, I have found within myself all I need and all I ever shall need. I am a man of great faith, but my faith is in George Gordon Liddy. I have never failed me, end quote. And of course, if you fast forward to more recent times, this has only gathered steam. Several years ago, you may have seen it or read about it, MTV did a special on the seven deadly sins, sort of seeing what the state of sin was in the culture. And the sin, as you might suspect, that took the biggest hit from contemporary culture was pride. For example, popular musician Ice-T said, pride is mandatory. That's one of the problems of the inner city. Kids don't have enough pride. I got into a gang because of pride. Then there was actress Kirstie Alley, who said, I don't think pride is a sin, and I think some idiot made that up, end quote. And of course, we all long for the day when a microphone is stuck in front of a sports figure that he said, hi, mom, not anymore. Stick a microphone in front of any sports figure today, and you will get an endless stream of verbiage, all self-promoting. To our self-esteemed drunk culture, pride has become a friend of the soul not its enemy. But the truth is, according to Scripture and according to James, pride is the soul's greatest enemy because it isolates us both from the grace of God and from the God of grace. I invite you to turn again with me to James chapter 4. Let me read it to you again, remind you of the flow of James' thought. James chapter 4 verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? God jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In this wonderful paragraph, James outlines for us three practical steps for dealing with the sinful conflict that's so much a part of our lives. He introduces his topic in the first verse with quarrels and conflicts. 
Now, we've learned that these practical steps enable us to comprehend the truth about ourselves and our condition as well as about the solution. Let me remind you of where we've come so far. The first practical step that we noted is in verses 1 to 3, and that is we have to identify the true source of conflict. When you look at verses 1 to 3, we discover in verse 1 and again in verse 3 that the real source of the conflict is not the conflict issue. It isn't what we're arguing about. It isn't the other person. Instead, it is our pleasures, verse 1 and verse 3. That is, it's the cravings of our sinful heart for what will bring them satisfaction. And when we can't get them, when someone else stands in our way, conflict erupts. Secondly, we discovered that if we're going to deal with the sinful conflict in our lives, in verses 4 and 5, we must magnify the real sin behind conflict. You see, the real sin is much deeper and much darker than we could ever have imagined. James tells us that ultimately, if we're locked into a pattern of quarreling and arguing, the real sin that lies behind it is spiritual adultery. And he took us on a journey to help us see how he got there. Essentially, if I'm quarreling and arguing as a pattern of life, it's because I love pleasure. And if I love pleasure, I'm a friend of the world and an enemy of God, and I'm committing spiritual adultery against God. In other words, I love the stuff and pleasures, sinful pleasures of the world too much, and I love God too little. That's the real sin that lies behind conflict. Now, those are the first five verses. It's important that you understand the logical connection between verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 to 10. Verses 1 to 5 is the diagnosis of the problem. You go to a doctor, it's important for him to correctly diagnose the problem because if he doesn't, he can't give you the proper treatment. And so verses 1 to 5 is the diagnosis. It's understanding the true nature of the problem that goes on with quarreling and arguing. And that's crucial if we're going to deal with the problem at a heart level as opposed to simply trying to cut off the fruit or the branches. We deal with the root and not the fruit. So verses 1 to 5 is the diagnosis. When you come to verses 6 through 10, we come to the prescription or to the treatment or to the solution to conflict. It's important that you understand what I have come to grasp from this text, and that is that although James writes verses 6 through 10 as the very specific solution to those who are locked in a pattern of arguing and quarreling, the principles in verses 6 through 10 are not confined merely to arguing and quarreling. They're not confined to a particular sin, but instead the principles of verses 6 through 10 are far-reaching both in their implications and in their application. Whatever sin or sins you find yourself locked in a battle with this morning, here is the solution. It may be arguing and quarreling, but it may not be. Whatever it is, I can promise you that verses 6 through 10 give you the solution. They give you the path home. Here is how to get from wherever your sin has taken you back to God. So the third practical step that we discover for dealing with sinful conflict, and for that matter, with any other sin, is in verses 6 through 10, identify the right solution. As we saw last week, the solution is contained in one simple word, the word grace. Whatever sin it is, 
that we find ourselves engaged with, whatever sin it is that we find ourselves having given into, the solution comes to us from God in a single word. It's the word grace. Notice in verse 6, he explains that reality in five very pregnant words. But he gives greater grace. But, that is in contrast to our sin, God, that is, it's his nature, it's because of who he is to be gracious, gives, literally is constantly giving, greater, that is greater than our sin, and even greater than his wrath against sin, grace. And as we saw last time, grace is the reality that God has a positive disposition, an attitude toward us, even though we have earned exactly the opposite. We have earned his eternal wrath. He treats us as the special objects of his favor. You see, whatever your sinful struggle may be, and by the way, each of us has our own set of sins that will always be our propensity, part of the package we inherited from our parents, whether it's arguing and fighting, as here in James 4, living for pleasure, or whether it's pride or anger or bitterness or selfishness or fear or worry or you fill in the blank, whatever your list may be, whether your struggle falls, as the Apostle John puts it, more into the category of the lust of the flesh or whether your sin falls more into the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, regardless, whatever it is, your only hope and my only hope is the grace of of our God. That is the solution. God has at his disposal the grace of forgiveness, which we desperately need if we find ourselves locked into sin. The grace of forgiveness. God bestows upon us the favor of forgiving us for offending him and offending his just and holy character and violating his law. We not only need the grace of forgiveness, however, we also need the grace of sanctification. You see, grace will not only forgive you, And grace will not only restore you to full fellowship with God, but it will also empower you to obey God's word consistently and to grow in holiness. Now, we know that we can't earn that grace. We know that we can't require God, as it were, to dispense it to us. As we saw last week, God said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. This is God's sovereign opportunity. It's his sovereign decision. So here's the key question. How can we, who so desperately need grace, apply to God to give us what we can never earn and what he sovereignly bestows solely according to his own choice? How? Well, James tells us how. You see, although grace can never be earned, God has set a condition, a prerequisite that must be met before he bestows grace. There is one condition, one qualification for receiving grace, and it is humility. Humility. It's being willing to truly humble yourself before God. You see, God always bestows grace on true humility, on the one who most clearly understands the severity of and the hopelessness of his condition before God. Now, there are many examples of this in both the Old and the New Testaments, but James, under the genius and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses a proverb. Proverbs three, thirty-four. Notice he quotes it in verse 6 of chapter 4. Therefore it says, speaking of the Scripture, therefore it says, you don't have to guess of how God dispenses grace. 
You don't have to wonder if whether or not this is true. James says, this is what the Scripture says. This is God's self-revelation of how he responds to us and on what basis he dispenses grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is the condition on which God bestows his grace presented to us in the form of a timeless proverb. And it's one I would urge you to commit to memory. Now listen carefully. Since grace is necessary for salvation, but not just salvation, it's also necessary for forgiveness in our ongoing relationship to God. It's necessary for sanctification, for facing trials in a way that honors God. Grace is necessary for serving God adequately and for everything in our Christian lives I am convinced that there is nothing more foundational than understanding what God says here. Because God says, you need grace. It's how you deal with sin, both in forgiveness and in growing out of that sin. And I dispense it on the basis of this revelation. This is one of those timeless, inviolable laws of the moral universe. I don't care who you are, God will not show partiality to you. He will not give you an exemption, a get-out-of-jail-free card from this timeless principle. Let's think about it together. The first half, of course, describes the negative side. God is opposed to the proud. Now, what does it mean to be proud? The word proud literally means, the Greek word literally means, to show oneself above others. It is to regard yourself as the standard of excellence and look down on everyone else. It is a kind of haughty superiority that sees yourself as the standard and you measure everybody else against that standard. And guess what? No one ever measures up. No one's ever as good as you are. That's what it means to be proud. Now, toward God, pride tends to demonstrate itself in a variety of ways, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But it's important for you to understand the gravity of this sin. Most of us have never heard someone confronted about pride. Most of us have never heard the seriousness of this sin. It's one we overlook. It's part of who we are. It's part of the culture. But listen, pride was the very first sin in God's universe. It began in the heart of one that's called the covering cherub, the most important figure next to God in heaven, probably the prime minister of heaven. And in his heart, he began to take pride in the beauty that God had given him in creation. He began to take pride in the position that he'd received, and he began to think that he deserved a higher position, even one equal to or over God himself. But it was also part, pride was, of the very first human sin. Adam and Eve concluded that they knew better than God, better than his revelation, better than his purposes for them. Some theologians would even say that pride was part of the essence, or was the essence of the first sin. And to the sons of Adam, to all of us, it comes very naturally. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 1, when he begins his indictment of the human race, he gets to verse 30. As he's listing all the sins that we're guilty of, he lists this very word. It's translated there as arrogant in Romans chapter 1 verse 30. The same word occurs in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, where Paul tells Timothy that in the last days, savage times will come and men will be arrogant. They will see themselves above others. Jonathan Edwards writes of this sin, pride is the worst viper in the heart. 
It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. Listen to this. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. It is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lust whatever. It is ready to mix with everything, and nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, are of so dangerous consequence. There is no one sin that does so much let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. Did you notice that Edward said pride is deceitful? It's deceitful, so we don't recognize it. CNN founder Ted Turner once remarked, if only I had a little humility, I would be perfect. Pride can enable us to write a book entitled The Ten Most Humble People in the World and How I Taught the Other Nine. It's deceitful. You see, pride expresses itself in an infinite variety of ways. Here are just a few. Here's how pride can show itself. You can be proud of your accomplishments and your wealth. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, as Nebuchadnezzar reflected, he said this, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? There are no Nebuchadnezzars around in terms of greatness, but there are plenty of Nebuchadnezzars around in terms of attitude. You can be proud of your position and your status. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and he says, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. You can love position and status, even religious position and status. You can take pride in your spiritual activities. Again, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And then he lists two. They broaden their phylacteries. This was a misunderstanding of the command to bind the word of God to your forehead and to your heart. They took it literally. But they also widened, or excuse me, lengthened their tassels, the tassels of their garments. That was commanded by God, but they just made them bigger than God required so that everybody would know how spiritual they really were. You can take pride in your spiritual activities, even those commanded by God. You can take pride in your spiritual gifts, responsibilities, and privileges. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul warns us about this. He says, Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You can be proud of the gifts God has given you. You can be proud of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Knowledge makes arrogant, that is, without love being mixed with it. You can be proud of your theological prowess, of your biblical knowledge. You can be proud of your convictions, those things that go beyond the Scripture themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn the meaning of the saying, not beyond what has been written. Stick with the Scripture, he says. Why? so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. When you go beyond Scripture, when you go beyond what has been written, you begin to be puffed up and proud. Look how spiritual I am. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 9 of his series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. 
Tom will have part 10 for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. Tom? If I were to ask you, what is the greatest spiritual danger in your life, what would you say? James would say, for you and for me, it's pride. Pride is really the greatest enemy we face because pride isolates us from God's grace and from the God who is grace. So it's important that we turn to God, we turn to his grace, we humble ourselves and deal with that pride rather than ignoring it because left to reside in our hearts and even to grow like acid, it will destroy everything it touches and ultimately leave us spiritually bankrupt, destitute of the grace of God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.